Let us pray. Lord God, what we remember of the past shapes who we are today and influences how we will act tomorrow. On this Memorial Day weekend, we remember and give thanks for those who made the ultimate sacrifice in service to their country. We grieve with those who grieve and pray comfort for those who mourn. We ask for the wisdom to allow the memory of those who died for a cause greater than themselves to form our words, opinions, and decisions in ways that honor them. Help us to take seriously the cost of war and enter into combat only when every other option has been exhausted. May the sacrifice of those we remember this weekend not be in vain, but instead guide us to work tirelessly for peace, justice, and freedom for all people. Amen. Our Gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel according to John, the first nine verses of the fifth chapter. Let us hear God's word. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Beth Zatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I teach seminary classes in Presbyterian theology, I often begin with some touchstone references from our historic confessions. Like this one. God alone is Lord of the conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience, our English Presbyterian forebears affirmed in the 1600s. That affirmation has been applied to matters of theological doctrine. A contemporary version of that would sound something like, no one can tell me what to believe. But that affirmation is also relevant in terms of political matters as in fact our tradition has insisted that there is no real dichotomy between matters of faith and how that faith plays itself out in the world. God alone is Lord of the conscience, therefore, is a reference we have made when considering matters of choice. 
and abortion. Now, it's neither my desire nor task to tell you what to believe on this. But the issue of abortion has been in our news and as citizens and, more importantly, as people of faith. We cannot ignore it. So I can remind us what our church has said. Presbyterians have struggled with the issue of abortion for nearly 50 years. Beginning in 1970, when the General Assembly declared the artificial or induced termination of a pregnancy is a matter of careful ethical decision of the patient and therefore should not be restricted by law. In 2006, the General Assembly adopted this language. When an individual woman faces the decision whether to terminate a pregnancy, the issue is intensely personal and may manifest itself in ways that do not reflect public rhetoric or do not fit neatly into medical, legal, or policy guidelines. Humans are empowered by the Spirit prayerfully to make significant moral choices, including the choice to continue or end a pregnancy. Human choices should not be made in a moral vacuum, but must be based on scripture, faith, and Christian ethics. For any choice, we are accountable to God. However, even when we err, God offers to forgive us. And we said other things, important things, about how we provide public witness, care, and support to women the inherent value of children, the encouragement of adoption as an alternative choice. In 1992, the Presbyterian Church encouraged an atmosphere of open debate and mutual respect for a variety of opinions concerning the issues related to abortion and problem pregnancies, and that the church ought to be able to maintain within its fellowship those who, on the basis of a study of scripture and prayerful decision, come to diverse conclusions and actions. The assembly went on to say, we affirm the ability and responsibility of women, guided by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit in the context of their communities of faith, to make good moral choices in regard to problem pregnancies. The considered decision of a woman to terminate a pregnancy can be a morally acceptable, though certainly not the only or required decision. The Christian community must be concerned about and address the circumstances that bring a woman to consider abortion as the best available option. Poverty, unjust societal realities, sexism, racism, and inadequate supportive relationships may render a woman virtually powerless to choose freely. Finally, we said this in 2006. In life and death, we belong to God. Life is a gift from God. We may not know exactly when human life begins and have but an imperfect understanding of God as the giver of life and of our own human existence. Yet we recognize that life is precious to God and we should preserve and protect it. 
We derive our understanding of human life from scripture and the reformed tradition in light of science, human experience, and reason guided by the Holy Spirit. Because we are made in the image of God, human beings are moral agents, endowed by the Creator with the capacity to make choices. Our Reformed tradition recognizes that people do not always make moral choices. And forgiveness is central to our faith. In the Reformed tradition, we affirm that God is the only Lord of conscience, not the state or the church. As a community, the church challenges the faithful to exercise their moral agency responsibly. That's a lot. You may agree or disagree with some or none or all of this. I simply wanted to share with you what your church has said as a kind of benchmark this week especially. I also wanted to remind us that faith-based perspectives on this matter can be varied and are. And at a deeper level, I'm trying, even imperfectly trying, to reflect this morning's gospel lesson, where Jesus demonstrates clearly and vulnerably his commitment to conscience over legalism, an ethic of compassion and mercy and love. In my Facebook stream right now, at least three different groups I know are traveling in Israel and Palestine, including our colleague Lynette Sparks. They no doubt will encounter the sight of today's lesson from John's Gospel. And hearing it, we can almost imagine it. Jesus and his crew are moving toward Jerusalem for a festival And at one of several gates at the city, this one called the Sheep Gate, there was a large group clustered there, as they did presumably all day, every day. And I think we can imagine that as well, what that image looks like. Many invalids, the Gospel tells us, we would utilize better language than that, more sensitive language, especially as we are seeking with sensitivity and faithfulness for this community and its building to be more welcoming, more inclusive, more hospitable to those with all abilities. But we get the point. Many invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed, One man had been there 38 years, we are told. 38 years. Imagine that. Imagine a life of poverty and hunger and ostracism and rejection. But Jesus saw him and acknowledged him, which is worth noting. And then he spoke with him, and not in a condescending way, and that's worth noting also. They have kind of an odd interchange. Do you want to be made well? The answer is, or should be, of course I do. 
So we have to wonder, is something more deep going on than that? Was there something in that man's life, mental or physical, emotional or spiritual, that had prevented being well from happening? It's a question we leave now to the counselors and the therapists working with a client or a patient. Do you want to be made well? And here the answer is probably all of those things, hence this conversation between the man and Jesus, but it's, but it's also a logistical conversation. Sir, the man says to Jesus, I do want to be made well. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's engaging in conversation. I do want to be made well. I do want to enter that pool by the gate. Because presumably the waters at the sheep gate have a healing capacity. That's why so many are so regularly gathered there. There's a problem. I have no friends to help me into the water. By the time I make it there, there are so many others in line in front of me that I can't get to the pool. That's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. His physical condition is hindered even more so by a lack of community and compassion. So this is about physical access to be sure, but clearly about so much more than that. And I kind of wonder about the internal dialogue between these two, this man and Jesus, what they were thinking, but we get none of that. We simply get Jesus bypassing all of it. When he simply tells the man to stand up and take his mat and walk. And that's what the man does. Accessibility achieved. Problem solved. And yet, the story does not stop there. After the man gets up and walks away, we are told that the day was a Sabbath. Red flag. That is, it's a day for rest and no work. And so the religious authorities see the man carrying his mat and walking. That's work, so they hassle him. But he tells them that the man who healed him told him to do it. If you keep reading in chapter 5, you'll see this whole interchange. The man doesn't know Jesus' name. He knows what he has done. We're told they'll meet again later or a more proper encounter. But already we know that Jesus' behavior is problematic. Because of carrying a mat on the Sabbath is a violation. Then how much more so is healing on the Sabbath? Healing as work itself. But more deeply, healing as a manifestation of God's power. Jesus as God's healing agent. So it would seem obvious to us that Jesus did the right thing by healing that man, regardless of the day. And yet it was a clear violation of religious law. So perhaps it was not so obvious. Jesus could have waited till sundown, after all, when the Sabbath was over. What was one more day after 38 years But remember, God alone 
is Lord of the conscience, which applies both for the divine Christ, who can do what he wants, when and where he wants, with whomever he wants, but it also applies to the human Jesus, who saw real human need in front of him and simply responded. Theologians and philosophers have devised a term, situational ethics, for this. I'm an amateur ethicist at best, but this seems to be situational ethics at its clearest. So that Jesus, all of us, have our developed bedrock set of principles. It could be love, it could be justice, it could be freedom, it could be compassion. And then we apply them. We apply them whether on the issue of abortion and choice, or matters of peace and war, as we think this Memorial Day weekend, or when a gravely ill man presents himself to us with very bad timing. Situational ethics doesn't mean having no ethics. It does not mean just making it up as you go on the spot. It also doesn't mean having weak ethics that can be blown in any direction like a rusty weather vane. It means having a solid foundational set of ethical beliefs and then behaviors based on those beliefs. So that when a moment comes, and you know it will, you apply them, hopefully faithfully. You are prepared for the unexpected because your base is as solid as a rock, which is what the human Jesus did. Compassion trumped, in this case, the legalistic precepts of his own faith tradition. It would get him into trouble. It would get him killed, as it might do for us or anywhere short of that. And I know we're not Jesus, but we do have agency to act. It is a gift from God to live ethically in the world. In the face of every kind of pressure, in the face of messiness, shades of right and wrong. When faced with an ethical dilemma, a moral choice, my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of us is that we would have a rock-solid base, a faith-based base, and humbly and prayerfully do the right thing. So help us God. Amen.